edition of In the Lion's Den. I'm your host, James Boyle, joined as always by my father, Dennis Boyle. Good evening. And uh, plastic cover enthusiast, Rick Catamaran. Hey there. Did that one land? Plastic bed covers I was going for. <laughs> Sometimes one will pop in my head. That one came to me this morning, but then I don't write them down. Yeah, you got to come up with it before you start. Yeah, the red that's button. what you got to do. Uh, so we're back, and we're we're on season three. Opening up with season three, episode one, Valar Doharis. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, well, no, actually. And last week was similar to that, but... I know Valar Magulis means all men must die. And uh, Valar Doharis, I'm sure, is like an answer to that, but I forget what the hell it Vala means. Vala meaning... All men must serve. All men must serve, huh? Ah. I don't know what... It certainly did not come up in this episode, but I guess they wanted Valar Margulis and Valar Doharis to be back-to-back. Well, the old men serving certainly played in this. Yeah, that's true. So what's on your notes, Dad? When, when we opened up, we were in that tremendous blizzard with um, John Stark's buddy. Uh, Sam, his I name I call is. him the Doughboy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he was running crazy and seeing all that crazy shit going on. All those ghouls and... Uh, right, so he's... We're beyond the wall, and he's in the middle of these ghouls, these ice demons, and he's running for his life, and he doesn't seem to be doing too good. And how far away from the wall, would you say? Far. D- like days of travel? Yeah, days marching. Okay. So then, anyway, a um, ghoul comes and tries to grab him up, and uh, the, the, the first of all, the wolf comes and rescues him by biting him. Yeah, we get some wolf action, yeah. which we haven't seen in a while, uh, besides my furry obsession. Yeah, oh, Ghost. that had me thinking of that, yes. <laughs> Ghost, who's Jon Snow's white wolf, comes in and saves Sam. Gets him good and, and drags that. And the next thing you know, the, the uh, ghoul is, is uh, ablaze. Uh, from that guy, who who was that guy? That so his name's Mormont, and he's the Lord Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Yeah, he sets the the demon thing ablaze, the White Walker ablaze, uh, and he is standing and leading a group of Night's Watchmen who appear to have suffered through a battle of some sort. Yeah, he's uh, bleeding about the head. Yeah, everyone's having a really rough day out here. It's not only colder than hell, but they're they're pretty well beat up. And then we uh, see Jon Snow as he's walking along with... Well, real quick before we jump, uh, the Lord Commander tells him... We first he asked Sam, did you release the ravens? Which he's saying... Yeah, what... Oh, I'm not so he was kind of... He really is asking him, did you send a warning back to the wall that these creatures are out here and presumably uh. going towards the wall? Sam says no, he, uh, he didn't get a chance before he ran for his life. Should then, he have had a chance? Nah, I mean, nah. Where the hell is he going? Yeah, but I think it was just kind of shame. Oh, so so Mormon is saying, you know. So now Mormon's saying, we got a, we got a long march ahead of us through this shitty weather. And everybody we know is going to be dead. Surrounded by ice zombies. So, yeah, and if we don't do this, everyone you know is going to die, so. That's where they are. So, uh, Mormon trained those guys? He's like their leader. Yeah, they're all the Night's Watch that he brought with him on this excursion. I wonder why um, the Doughboy didn't say, 
when the hell was I going to have a chance to do that? I've been running from these things. Yeah. I mean, his, he's not the one to stand up for himself, right, I guess. Right, right. Jesus. I've been running are they crazy. truly ghouls? Oh, uh, they're like zombie demons almost. Sometimes there's like a hollowed out black spot where their face should yeah, be. Yeah, so they don't really make this distinction explicit in the it's show. It's just like James when you try to photograph him. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> me after six shots and a drink at the bar. <laughs> um, so they don't make this distinction explicit in the show, but it's much clearer in the books. There are two like enemies these ice zombies they're the the white walkers which are like the really demonic looking ones with the glowing blue eyes we saw them in one of very early right and he was one was riding on the horse so they're like the i don't know leaders almost and they have the ability to raise the dead and when they raise the dead that they come back as essentially they're zombies like and fighters for them and exactly they fight for them so the one we see at the start of this episode is, is just, and in the books, they call them whites. Like the reanimated corpses, they call them whites, as in W I G H T. Right. So we're getting into some hardcore fantasy terminology here, but those are the whites, and then the white walkers are like the demons that do the reanimating. Uh, oh, so they were dead at one time. How's that for some nerd shit? Boy, that's good creeper knowledge by you. Yeah. Then, then we see John walking along, John Snow, mm-hmm. who one of these days is going to take a premiere role in this. <laughs> yeah, one day. Right? I mean... Well, you could see he's becoming more yeah, of a focus I now. wish you were in more, though. Yeah, yeah. I only say that because our, our, our friend wanted to be him for Halloween and thought he was the greatest thing since Bubblegum, and I'm looking for that to happen. Yeah. You probably wouldn't... You probably... It probably seems like it's taken a while because you've been anticipating it yeah. for so long. Because you know he becomes the main character. If you were just watching the show blind, he would just be another, at this point, right? Another secondary. Sort if of. someone would, were to ask me who is the prominent, I don't know that I could come up with. As far as airtime, I don't. They seem to have yeah. divided the time up so equally amongst yeah. everybody. You you start to see as the seasons go on, people start to take more. Sense. Yeah, I wonder if they've paid. It would seem to me that everybody thus far should have been paid the same money. Yeah, it, it's not until I don't. I think they had contracts up through season five or six, and then following that, the top four or five get a get a premium because they're like you. You start to see they're like the main, such as I don't want to say. Okay, yeah, okay, that'll yeah, obvious. An alert. All right. So, so anyway, there was this giant among the white. That now they're the White Walkers. These these are the wildlings. Wildlings. Jeez. So we got <laughs> we've got wildlings that are humans, like regular sort of hunter gatherer tribe. Like oh, they sort of broke out on their own. Right. Right. They live beyond the wall. So they're, they're like hippies. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're like Eskimos. Feral <laughs> <Feral> hippies. <laughs> That's Stinky. What I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to put it into. Uh, Regular men's thinking, but yeah, okay. So they, they bathe in patchouli in this episode. They didn't so. want anybody to be their leader, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and what they use Doctor Bronner, so <laughs> yeah, they're they show this giant. Rick would fit right in up there, <laughs> hammering, <laughs> hammering um, stakes down into the ground with his bare hands, and she's telling John how when he kills people, that's what he does. He sort of turns them upside down, and just pounds them into the ground. Yeah, so within the first, like, six minutes or so of this episode, 
we see two very fantastical things. We see the zombie attacking Sam, and we also see a literal giant. Yeah. Like creature giant. Almost reminded me of um, in um, the Muppets Christmas story with oh, yeah, the Miles Kane of all people. Yeah, past, that's who he reminded me of. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll see, like you're seeing now that weirder and weirder things are kind of being introduced. Yeah. to the universe because she Egret actually makes a joke to John. It's the first giant you've ever seen, and he's like speechless. And that's what she says. Yeah. Normally he pulls his pants down and says, hey, here you go. Here's another giant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they really are. Uh... He was, it's so cold, though. He's saying shrinkage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're nomads. And then John has, they're bringing him back to meet with their. Their leader. Yeah. yeah this supposed, quote unquote, king beyond the wall. If... But is it because they've captured him? And yes. he's a Stark, even though well, he's a bastard? Probably both things. So he, was, he they know he's Ned Stark's son. We, Like I said before, you see Ned Stark, even though he's dead as hell. His The impact and the implications of his whole presence yeah, in yeah. this universe last. Uh, and also that he killed this Corrin Halfhand, who was like kind of a legendary Night's Watchman. And used to serve, we find out that this king beyond the wall, man's raider, what well, used to be on the Night's Watch and then defected. Yes. So because well, John... wait, was that the red hair with the beard? No, no they make the other it guy. seem like that, okay. but then it's the other guy. Because when John comes in, he goes down to his knees and they're laughing like, well, "What are you doing?" Right, right. He's saying, "My lord," and then you the... hear that he goes, "My great or your grace," he says. Now you're gonna have to call me your grace every time I fart. Yeah, line. oh yeah, yeah. Good line there. Rick, that was a good line. Every time I fart, you're going to have to call me my lord now. So the word is fart in, in Game of Thrones? Yes. Th- that is confirmed canon. <laughs> Flatulence. Uh, and then we see him meet the king, right? And, and he says, why Why do you want to join us? Right. And he just says, well, I want to um, I want to be free. And then they kind of go, no, no, that's, that ain't a good enough answer. Mm. He was telling the story of the, and again, this was an early episode of that baby. Remember when he was hiding, right? Yeah, that was last season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The baby was taken away and he that, that bothered him. Yeah. I, I remember saying to you then, well, what's... What's the significance? Yeah, yeah. So in this scene, it's kind of like a tense standoff between John and this man's raider, who the, the implication is that if John doesn't convince this guy that he's here for the right reason, yeah, this guy's going to kill him. Right. Yeah. But he does say to him, well, if I'm a traitor, then you're a traitor. Right, right. And I think you're right where where at first John tries to give like the company line. Like, yeah. And Mance is like, bullshit. And then John says, was pissed that Lord Mormon didn't do anything about Craster giving up the babies. If you remember, he was like, we, we know he's doing this. Right, We're, right. And Mormon was kind of like, just let it be. So when John says this. He's really believes what he's saying. I yeah. think that's why Mance is like, okay, well. They do have a soft spot, soft spot for babies throughout. Yeah. You know. John does, at least. Yeah. We see John's kind of moral like his dad. And then Khaleesi later on. She, yeah, yeah. There are, there are a few sort of moralistic characters. John does finally say to him, I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. Right. They actually quote that, that here good. in the wiki. That seemed to save him. Yeah. 
And then we see our favorites, two of our favorites, anyway, Tyrion and the Queen Bitch. Mm-hmm. They're meeting. That's a good scene. Yeah, too. that is. That is. Whenever they're on together. Yeah. Those two actors are like really close friends. I don't know if I probably oh, mentioned this okay. in real life. Uh, is, is she an American? No. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Who, he uh, is. This is Queen. What's her name? Uh, oh, Cersei. Lena Hetty? Yes. Yeah, yeah. English actress. English actress. And he's from Jersey, right? She's from Bermuda. Wow. And, um... Yeah, Dinklage is from Morristown. Oh, okay. Jersey boy. She's uh, she's probing to find out why are you meeting with our father. How did she find out again? She just says, I know everybody. And She says that, but then she goes, I asked... I, she asked her dad. Um, Who hates him more? His own dad or her? <laughs> I don't know, because we'll see his fa- The father is absolutely brutal. In the next scene or whatever. He comes that was back. a good scene. But there's some... We see that Tyrion is really low down right now. He's living in this little dingy little room and somewhere in the castle. And he's terrified that somebody's out to kill him. So he's very careful with her. And he's got an axe and ready to kill her. But And she's loving every second of it, right? She's yeah, like, yeah. She, she plays that sort of smug, satisfying... She has the two knights there with her. And he's saying, no, they're not coming in. I just want to talk to you. And yeah. He, he, by the way, had sent for, um, he sent for that his his soldier, uh, his protector. Oh, uh, right, Bron, yeah. Who was happened to be in the middle of a sexual conquest and didn't like that too much. But <laughs> Yeah, then, then when they met, then when they met, the Bron and, and him, he's saying, I want more money. <laughs> that yeah. was good. That was almost like a modern day thing. <laughs> yeah, he tells him, you got to pay me double. That's it. He says, I don't, said, I don't even know, know what I'm paying. paying you. <laughs> so he said, then you can afford it. Then. Yeah. So Bron sort of agrees. Yeah. To... Why? Why is he approaching with that attitude of I want more money now? Because that's it... all he cares about. Oh, is okay. the money, Yeah. And he knows everybody's after him, so he can get it. Yeah. And that was the start of the first union, by the way, Rick. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he does uh, kind of agree uh, half-heartedly, and then. Now, where where are they then? What is that? All of that's in King's Landing. It is. Okay. King's Landing's like the capital. So all those like sort of really super political castle scenes are in King's Landing. But which is not where the fight was at the wall. It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah. okay. There, so there's like a bay called Blackwater Bay. Blackwater. The, yeah, the Battle of Blackwater. Right. Bay. That's what they keep referring to. So then we see Davos up on that mountain or or little up in the rocks i guess he somehow floated out to there yeah he's waving to try to get one of these boats to right to bring him along now when they asked him who were you with and then he says stannis and that was okay by them yeah so he they're they're asking basically if he if he says the wrong yeah yeah we're gonna gonna kill him yeah so he says i served the one true king and they say who is that and he says stannis baratheon and they they Throwing the rope, so he chose correctly. And he comes ashore and meets that the pirate guy who right. got him the ships. His buddy. And he's bitching that you, you wanted 30 ships and I was supposed to get wealth, but what do I got out yeah, of Yeah, and this pirate Salador is trying to tell him, don't get back involved with this. Because Davos wants to go back to Dragonstone where Stannis is and talk him out of this union with the Red Priestess exactly. woman. And the pirate saying, you're an idiot because you're going to die. But they, they do drop him off. He's afraid eventually. of her, I guess. Right. Yeah. And then he goes in and does try. 
Yeah. He's questioning why did you kill all these guys? And when he was talking about a fire, he means just like blowing up the boats and all. You mean? Yeah, the oh, wildfire. Okay. So we see Stannis is looking pretty rough. He's got like a five o'clock shadow. Which he also like, needs some kind of a like an SPF on it. Yeah, yeah. He's not hey, looking too good. What's that? The pirate is named Salador San. Yes. Is he um, like the Barbary pirates were from North Africa, so they were more like Berber influence? That name kind of sounds Berber esque. He's is, black. Is, he... is that what you're asking? Oh, he is. Well, you know, I, I, I was no, I was just curious. No, no, if, I know. Uh, if they were trying to, if there was some kind, well, because you know how there's parallels with the English and all that. Yeah. So they are. There are south of Westeros, I think there there are islands called the Summer Isles or something like that, and you get the sense that that's like the Africa, okay, sort of uh, and juxtaposition analog. or analog. Analog. There you go. Why uh, did yeah. why why does Davos have this hard on for the Red Witch? Like, well, he's she's scary. She is a yeah, scary. He's more. It, Loyal to Stannis oh, okay. because Stannis rose him up and he everything. He thinks she's no good for him. Right, right. So he's trying to protect Stannis, but Stannis is in a bad, bad way. Davos tries to stab her. Uh, that doesn't work. And then they Stannis says, toss him in the Take him away. prison. Yeah. So we saw two people get locked up by two close people to them. Yeah, yeah. He just don't like her for him or he just thinks she's trouble? Yeah, he thinks that she's taken over. She's like, whispering in his ear, like, isn't it something when they die and there's a fire? And yeah. she's, she's like she's all excited creepy. about it. It's yeah. a great way to go. It's the purest death and Jeez. all this stuff. Yeah, he knows that she's dangerous and he wants to get the Red Witch away from Stannis. So they they, they toss him in the break. And right. With no kind of... Uh, so what's, I mean, uh, someone should have fixed him up. <laughs> then, we're, then we go to the... How do you say it? Harrenhal? Harrenhal, yeah. Which, I, I can't, I'm trying to remember the episode when all them guys were killed there. Well, no, we we don't... We uh, didn't see that. We don't see it. Okay. Uh, but this is the castle that Arya was at last season. Yeah, yeah. And and Tywin Lannister was there. And that guy who's the killer helped them escape. Right, right. yes. Uh, so essentially what happened was, and they don't make this too explicit, but the Lannisters had left in the hands of this guy Gregor Clegane another sort of side character and knowing that the Starks were gonna the Stark army was coming towards the castle they abandoned the castle slaughtered everyone in it all the northern men in it so yeah the 200 northern right so Rob Stark and his mom and all his sort of head people are are wandering around this courtyard and see all these people slaughtered it's a way to kind of show that this war is going on and people like these people who really are just nameless peasants and stuff are being slaughtered like wholesale. And then Rob orders his mother to be put into the jail. Uh, yeah, so Rob says, find a, uh, a, a room that would serve as a cell. So he's still pissed because she let the Kingslayer, Jamie Lannister, go. And and does, does she think that Jamie Lannister came here and killed? Because Jamie Lannister's in the company of that big tall. No, he's just she's still as of last season she was still like prisoner or whatever. But I mean, um, does she like Rob Stark's almost suggesting that all of these dead men are because of 
her freeing Jamie Lannister. No, no. No, no, it's still just because... So Jamie, in his attempt to escape, had killed that guy, Karstark, like the gray-haired guy, his sons. And then she released Jamie. So she's been like a prisoner. I mean, it's still his mom, but... it was her thought that this would be a bargaining chip. Right, right. So ever since she did that, she's been like... For treason. And Jamie wasn't in tonight. Uh, with the no, big, he wasn't with in the this big one. tall Amazon lady. Um, okay, yeah, because he said for freeing Jamie Lannister. Right. And then Tyrion is meeting with his dad, Tywin, right? Mm hmm. Which is a good scene. That's. And I didn't know, I did not know the vitriol that he has yeah, for his yeah. own Yeah, we, we see pretty clearly. I mean, is it because he's in war for her? Yeah, I think it's different stuff. It's. Really? It's more like he says, Tywin says it's because Tyrion whores around and all this stuff. I think mostly it's that he sees Tyrion as like a blight on this perfect... He's pretty slick though. Yeah, yeah. But Tywin can't see that because he looks at him as kind of like a blight on this pr- pristine image of the Lannisters. You're not like a big macho fighter. Right. And more importantly, Tywin would never admit this, but it's probably just as much sort of self-arrogance or whatever, like something like this couldn't come from... From me, yeah. Yeah, the perfection You made a little that dwarf, actually, right, right. yeah. And he says, I I can't, as yet, I can't prove that you're not mine, so yada, yada, yada. Oh, and it was a good scene for me from Tyrion. Tyrion's acting, to me, what came across was he just wanted to see his dad. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted to, like, get accepted. It's heartbreaking, and, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. because... He, one of the things he says is, why does everyone keep saying I want something from yeah, him? Yeah, exactly. Why can't I just... His big thing is that he was injured with this face injury and his dad never came to check in or anything. And But yeah, we see the pure and unbridled hatred that Tywin has for Tyrion. He mentions the fact that uh, Tyrion does to his dad. Uh, like, well, what do you want? He says, well, a little bit of gratitude. Yeah, yeah. Because so, it is unfair. Like, Tyrion did do all that to protect the city, and really, it was because of him right, that not, the city not, not was the other. right. And Tywin gets to swoop in and get all the appraisal, and now he's sitting in his nice suit with the even the um, uh, um, Joffrey. Yeah, they're saying, "Oh, he, he was a hero." And yeah, all yeah, he was like he left the battle and everything. So after all that Tyrion tried to do for the city, he gets no thanks, and it just gets like his face rubbed in the dirt at this point. Now, would we? Would I know Castle Rock? No, no. We just only that 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 is like the seat, the home castle of the Lannisters. Okay, so Tyrion, uh, Rick, he, he's not. He actually had to step away. By the oh, okay. Time. He he's um, he is asking for that as like his right. Soul so he says basically by by rights it is his because Tywin's. The hand of the king, so his responsibilities are at King's Landing with the king. Cersei's a woman, so she can't. Jamie. Jamie, once you take the vow as a king's guard, which is like the inner circle of king- guards, like knights, you you give up all rights to oh. ancestral homes. So he says, as soon as Jamie took the white cloak, which is how they refer to becoming a king's guard, it it was my Castle Rock should be mine. But Tywin says, by all the rights of gods and men, could not see me pass along Castle Rock to you. In fact, he says, I will be eaten by maggots. Yeah, yeah. Before before. I would. 
give up Casagrande. He's just got a great delivery, that guy. Yeah. Dude, he's awesome. And he also it warns him, if I catch another whore... I'll hang her. Uh, yeah, that's the final. That hardly seems fair. <laughs> so he didn't get Cassidy Rock, and now now he has to run and... Because he does have an affection for, the, for his yeah, present yeah. whore. Shay, yeah. Next whore I catch in your bed, I'll hang, yeah. Then another one of our favorite characters, Lord Baelish, is seen talking with... Sansa, Sansa. yeah. Um... And the main thrust there is that he says, I'm going to find a, get a mission that's going to send me far away from King's Landing. I think I, I can get you out of here. And what, what is his aim in that? Well, he promises her that he can reunite her with her family. But he's got some ulterior. Yeah, of course, we know this guy is like, yeah. you can trust him half as far as you can throw him. But is she's he the eager. One that killed Ned or sold Ned out or whatever? Yes, yeah. Yeah. He's the one that put the knife up to Ned's throat when all it, when all yeah. was going down and said, I told you not to trust me. So he's now telling Sansa Stark, the oldest daughter, I can get you out of here. And she's very eager to do that. She says, I'll do anything. So Now, his the, her girl that's kind of her valet or whatever she is. That's Shay, yeah. Okay. That's Tyrion's yeah, woman. He, he says he wants to, to – um, he says he wants to talk to her alone. And then – his concubine woman, who's like, they act like they're their accountant or something. Yeah, they have an interesting yeah. exchange She's there. talking and saying, you got to watch out. And she seems like she's legitimately concerned and says, "Yeah, especially watch him right, with, with her. her. So she tells her, like, they're both whores who have, be- <laughs> by some level of ingenuity and uh, level-headedness. Yeah, they're have, nice whores. <laughs> have reached these this sort of up jumped positions and that's kind of what yeah talk she's saying about. look she says, you yeah, and i came from nowhere she says it's not easy for women like us born in the situation we were to reach you know to to be at this level to be operating at this level and then they kind of exchange shay isn't as receptive to it but uh, you're one operator yeah, yeah i think she, she paid attention though I think she, she got did. Yeah, bit. I think so. Too. I yeah. think the message was delivered. Now, one of the things that got to me, and I lost track of this, but when he, when he mentioned when Baelish mentioned that he saw her mom and her sister, she kind of brightened up, like she she thought she was dead or something. Or? Yeah. So they didn't know what happened to Arya because okay. remember Arya was kind of cut missing. her hair and tried right. to be yeah. a boy and all that. Uh, it's not clear whether he's lying there, and they maybe I don't know if this ever is explicitly said because remember. He was at Harren Hall speaking with Tywin Lannister, and Arya is in the room as the oh, yeah, server, yeah, yeah. and he kind of has a look. Maybe he recognized her and sort of used that as a because we as were a talking then chip. that Tywin is eventually going to yeah get... Tywin never figured it out, no. but Baelish either recognized her or is lying to Sansa to make it even more enticing for her to sort of uh, try to escape King's Landing. Sansa's excited at the thought of right. reuniting with the family. And he's playing that like a fiddle. Yeah. Like. And Khaleesi, we, we then cut to Khaleesi on a ship in, of all things, a, 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 an azure blue dress. Yeah, she's all dressed yeah, up. Yeah, she looks pretty good. And the dragons are getting bigger, we see. They're flying around and catching fish and frying them in midair. You, you should have seen that scene, yeah. right? <laughs> they spit it up in the thing and then they barbecue it and then they eat the damn thing. They're getting bigger, but not quick enough. She says, "I don't. I can't wait. I need an army." Why then does the tent man? I always forget his name. 
Jorah. Yeah. Jorah, yeah. I know, isn't he? I, I was going to say, it's bad when Rick knows it. <laughs> the te- as the tent man. Yeah, so... <laughs> Once again, rigid. I think it's his pants that they use as sails in this, yeah, on the ship. Yeah. It's what's they just show him her, and then the, the boat starts to move. <laughs> He's kind of like standing on the front of the boat, just with his hands and on his, it, on his hips, like it gives new meaning to the word "stiff wind." <laughs> and, well, she's and and there is that too because she's on the ship with all these. Uh, what, what are they called again? The guys the like Dothraki. Yeah, and they're all half of them are puking. Yeah, they're not having a good time. But why does he say to her, "You have to prove yourself strong"? Jeez, I think she's a pretty strong bitch. No, I think she's saying like. They call it the Kalasar, which just means like an army. And she's kind of frustrated because she's saying like, I need this army to, to get this done. I don't know how it's going to happen. And he says to her, you will get a Kalasar when you, when like, he's kind of saying like, when the time comes, you'll get your okay. Kalasar, but don't rush it kind of thing. Like, cause she's impatient that the dragons aren't, you know, they're growing, but not quick enough. They're, they're, I would say how big, they're the size of like a medium sized doll. Yeah, maybe. I would say. Uh, <laughs> but a lot nastier, a lot nastier, and more fire. But but that sort of drives our conversation because later on we're going to see she's in talks to purchase this army. Right from from there, when he tells you you have to prove yourself strong and kind of like you're saying, hold off a little bit. Then we see Davos and Stannis meeting. Right, right. Now they're buddies, right? Yes, and that's kind of giving you a clue of how deep in Stannis is with the Red Woman. Because of the power she has over him? Or yeah, he's like he's he, almost lost. He's like broken right now. Ever since he nailed her on the on the chess table. Yeah, she's got him under her. Jeez. This is the Red Woman that birthed the Black Demon? Yeah, yeah. 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 Smoke, Where are they at Black again? Smoke. smoke Baby. They haven't come mm. around for a while. Mm. Davos even says she's the mother of demons. That's what he calls her. To no avail, he gets tossed in the brig. That's it. After he's trying to warn... And then, do we go back to Khaleesi? Yeah, Stannis. Okay. Well, first, Marjorie was talking bullshit. Oh, right, right. Remember, she was sitting around with the little kids? Yeah. And uh, she's rather fetching looking. Yeah, she's kind of... But unique. I think what I get from this, and not knowing as much... But Joffrey knows she's too much. He can't handle her. Joffrey's certainly, like, a couple times in this episode, he's put off balance. For the first time, probably, that we've seen him, he doesn't know what to make of her or how to react to her. Because first we see her, she she stops the royal litter through the city. They're, they're kind of being carried through the city. And she stops it so she can run, it, run through this mud field to get to this orphanage. And she sits down and she talks with all the kids whose fathers died in this Blackwater Bay battle. Kind of like ingratiating herself to the people, yeah, but like maybe a, with some genuine concern, right? Like Melania. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's what... Well, yeah. You maybe. know what I'm saying? If we if we brought it into today... <laughs> maybe more genuine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, the parallels between the megalomaniacal... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and she's uh, telling these young kids who are now orphans that, well, your dad... Yeah. You should be happy. He did a good job and... So we don't know what her if she has ulterior motives. We know she's definitely gunning for power. And Every the queen time bitch has a real furious. Oh, yeah, man. does not like her. So there may be a level of I, like I like these scenes because this is like peak when people think of the sort of what's that word machinations. What would I say? Machinations. <laughs> <laughs> machinations. 
Uh, this is like peak Game of Thrones politics here because there's a lot going on in these two scenes. Yeah. Where it's like she's doing all this really heartfelt, uh, sort of passionate humanist, speaking of humanist values. For or the so kids. it would appear. Or so it would appear. Possibly as a way to ingratiate herself to the commoners, right? Maybe. Possibly as a way to try to get Geoffrey on her side and draw him away from her mother, right? Yeah. Because following this scene, there's a dinner scene with Marjorie, Joffrey, and the mother where we see, like you're saying, Cersei's distaste for this young, beautiful wow. yep. princess who's now working on her son. Like, that becomes very apparent. And Marjorie, it doesn't phase Marjorie in the slightest. She gives, like her, Marjorie, she gives her all she can handle. Yeah. Marjorie is playing... Both of them probably, and probably against each other, like a fiddle. Maybe you should wear something else. Are you cold? So or? the first comment, it's so funny because this is where I think a lot of the writing really shines, like these little sort of jabs. Marjorie walks into the room with like, you want to talk about plunging neckline. Yeah, yeah. Her breasts are out and about. Another calculated move, right, for Joffrey, who's like a 16-year-old But I think he's afraid of her sexually. And probably because... They show a scene where she sits down and he kind of looks at her cleavage, yeah. but looks away like he's super uncomfortable, right. doesn't know what to do. And when she walks into the room dressed like this, Cersei's first comment is, oh, maybe it's something like, maybe you'll, may, you might want to wear chilly, something. Yeah. yeah, it's a little chilly. You might want to. And Marjorie's kind of like, oh, no, it's okay. I, I enjoy the weather here or something. Um, and then they launch into the whole discussion about, but there's all these like, it's a conversation around dinner that, on one level, ostensibly is friendly between everyone, right? Like, super politically charged. Yeah. On a second level, like, what's really happening is almost everyone at this table is looking at the person next to them as an enemy and determining how best to sort of move the conversation to make sure yeah. that their goals are ultimately fulfilled. I can't imagine this fetching-looking Marjorie is looking forward to betting Joffrey. No, probably not, but for what that entails, aka becoming the queen, oh, she's she'll do what... Yeah, right. It seems... In the meantime, he's shitting Twinkies. Yeah, meanwhile, every he's time scared. She, yeah. But it certainly seems that she's trying to sort of endear herself to him and <laughs> she's draw good. him away. She is. And then there's another interesting exchange there where uh, Marjorie says something about Joffrey's heroics in battle, yeah. and then Cersei takes a jab at Joffrey. Remember, yeah, she says, yeah. "Oh yeah, my son was such a uh, heroic war hero," or oh, something like oh, that. Oh, she's saying that sarcastic. Exactly. Okay. So that's another exchange where it's like ostensibly she's praising her son, the king, but really they both know. No, he's actually a little. That's another one of machinations. <laughs> yeah, that's a big time <laughs> machination there. Uh, so that's one of those cool. Sort it's of, amazing that we we are thriving on these hatred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> relationships. It is. There's something about that sort of backstabbing, sort of political intrigue, like that's really fascinating for people. Certainly for me. Because Tyrion, in my opinion, is just an Angel Martin on Rockford. He's just a maneuver. Yeah, yeah. But then you do see 
sides he of it. He does care. Yeah, right. where you go, oh, that's... Well, you start to think, wow, so maybe this, all this sort of, like, bravado and is, because, is a defense mechanism right. because of how horrifically he's been treated yeah. forever. Nobody likes Even him. Even on this very podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, especially. Yeah, especially. That's why he likes to whore so much. Right. He just right. takes him. Then we see with Khaleesi, now she's right. then we recruiting her army or whatever. Um, who who is that guy? He's new. Yeah, so this is like like they don't say. Oh, and by the way, I recommend that we go see this army. And all of a sudden, they're there. And I'm, I'm well, like, they did mention that on the ships. Uh, oh, okay, but okay. it's kind of like blinking, you miss it. Yeah. Sort of. Basically, on the ships, it was it was what that conversation left us with was she's getting impatient. She knows she needs an army to be able to get to Westeros and conquer the Iron Throne. They are now going to search for these. They're going to go to this city called Astapor, and there's this army available for purchase, but they're slaves, which she does not seem comfortable with at all. Uh, and Jura is trying to talk her into it. He's saying, look, if you purchase them, you'll treat them ten times better right, than, right. Their, than their owners would have. But we see these sort of world-famous slave soldiers. They're called the Unsullied. And they're eunuchs? They're eunuchs, yeah. In fact, at one point, as a demonstration of their sort of unwavering loyalty and, and immunity to pain, the slave master, this like real prick guy, cuts off one of their nipples. Yeah. <laughs> and they and she's pissed. She says, like, you don't need to there's no need to do that. There's meanwhile, Rick, there's a translator in between Daenerys and this guy that he's, he's speaking, calling her like a Westerner yeah, so whore. He's calling her this. Westerner whore and he says the Jorah smells like piss and all this stuff. And then the translator translates it very politely. Right. Like it's almost done for a couple of yucks in there. She says to him, there's no need to harm the guy. And he, he makes a joke in his own mother tongue. Like, she's worried about a guy's nipple. Did, does she know that we cut off their balls? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which makes them eunuchs, right? Right. Correct. It's and, in castrato. Yeah, one of the things that uh, is mentioned that so there's 8,000 Unsullied for sale. 8, when they 000, become man. a warrior, they have to go to a market. They have to choose a newborn baby, grab it, and kill it. And they give the person a silver mark. Hey, and she says, you know, you would do this horrific thing and, and give the mother for her pain a silver mark. And the guy, the slave master kind of laughs and says, no, we give it to their owner, not the mother. You stupid Westerosi whore, whatever he says. So not a nice guy. Daenerys is seen speaking with Jorah not too long after. The guy gets, says, you have two days to decide whether you want to purchase him, whatever. She talks to Jorah, and she's very uncomfortable with this idea of oh, yeah. owning slaves. She says, if I have a slave army, what does that make me? And he's kind of telling her, well, you'll give them a better life. Yeah, and- the girl... The girl who says, you know, you got to hurry here because it's almost like a used car lot. Yes, yeah, it's like a lot of... There's a lot of people looking at these yeah, things. Yeah, she says... She says, my master begs uh, your grace to be quick because there are many buyers uh, for the unsullied. Uh, and then in this, the final scene. As right, they're walking when the girl tosses her that wooden Yeah, there's ball. this creepy, creepy ass little blonde girl who kind of makes eyes at Daenerys and they're like play, playing. The girl has a wooden ball that she rolls to her. Daenerys picks it up uh, and before she can open it, it's sort of like a container of some sort. Yeah. A hand knocks it out of her hand. 
Uh, she gets thrown to the ground and bursting from this. Who gets thrown to the ground? What's that? Who gets thrown to the ground? The girl or? Uh, Daenerys gets thrown to the ground. Um, and then the ball. Jorah grabs this random attacker and the ball opens up to reveal this creepy. Like a robotic uh, tarantula almost. It was like a butt, like an insect. We can assume was some kind of poison attempt. Because it goes after her, but they stab it. But here comes a guy and puts the knife right through it. Right. He is Barristan Selmy. Selmy. So this guy, and the episode ends there. Right. Well, he explains, I had a hard time keeping up with that. Yeah, so basically this guy, and I can remember when I watched this, I had no idea who the hell this guy was. But I believe it was from season one, episode ten, after Joffrey becomes king. He dismisses Barristan. Rick, you might remember this because I think we did talk about it. He dismisses Barristan as this old guy. Barristan was like renowned in mm, Westeros. The way as, Joffrey can. Right, tell now. right. I that, yeah. Barristan was no, renowned as this world famous warrior and knight. <laughs> and he was King, Kingsguard to Daenerys' father, then Kingsguard to Robert Baratheon after the, after the war, then Kingsguard to Joffrey very briefly. Joffrey dismissed him, and he got furious. He went off the handle and said, "This is a vow I took for life. You're taking this from me." And I think, if I remember correctly, Joffrey was kind of saying something almost like, "Well, hang on for a couple more days," and he's like, "No, I'm done." Well, yeah, he says, "Yeah, we're gonna give you a, a castle by the beach, and you can live out your days." Yeah. And Barrison says, "No, I'm a king's I'm guard. This is my vow, and if you're gonna do this, my good bitch, I'm out." And he bounces. And now he sees, he, he says, he apologizes to Daenerys. He says, I was serving a false king. I served your dad many, many years ago. And I would I would like to serve you on your queen's guard. Her, her dad. Her dad, who was the mad king, who was the king previous to Robert Baratheon. God. And then the episode ends there. So, thoughts. A lot of political movements and uh, set up and... New locations and new characters abound. So, uh, men, uh, men, what was it? All well, men must serve, I guess. Men must serve, yeah. So, I, I think that was a fitting name once I saw all the. But as far as my favorite scene, I think I liked when the father was yeah. giving Tyrion all yeah. the hard time. Yeah, that was pretty. And it's two great actors. And one is just chewing out the other one, and there's nothing he can do. Tyrion is the, the, he's really down at the low depths. Yeah, he's in a bad spot. And we would, I would never thought I would feel bad for him, but I kind of do now. I would say my favorite, besides that one, because that's hard to talk, would be that dinner scene with Marjorie, Joffrey, and Cersei, because there's just so much going on. Oh, yeah, on. yeah. They're cultivating a nice hatred. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. And it's cool to see Marjorie kind of making her moves here. She's like Miss Innocence, but she's but she plays she's loaded, it out man. well. Yeah. yeah, she knows the deal. And she comes from the Tyrells are like this rich, famous family. Is as that well. her brother alongside? Yes, her? yeah, that's okay. her brother Loras. He's like a famous knight. Wasn't he trying to? He was banging Robert's brother. That's remember? True. Yeah. <laughs> you can't tell the gay birds without a program here. <laughs> I'm trying to remember that what. That relevance that had. Because remember uh, the girl came up to him and she was like trying to entice him? Yeah, well she was, Marjorie was trying to get uh, the other Baratheon to get her pregnant. 
So she was saying, remember, and he couldn't really. Yeah. He, so he she was telling him, if I can bring my brother in, whatever you need. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That was season one? That was season, that was probably early season two. Okay. Yeah, that was early season two. Oh, because this is three. Yeah. Okay. Three, yeah. Right. Um. So, season three, episode one. Rick, any thoughts? Any, uh. Anything we're confused on here? It, has anything tempted you even to watch any of it? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the the fact that they're not in a lot is tough on keeping up. Yeah, and the yeah. fact that they're not John and Joe and you know Yeah. Yeah. Is is especially hard, but it seems like when you don't have a week off it's a little bit easier, but <laughs> <laughs> Well that book that you're reading Oh, yeah, Enlightenment Now. Shit, I didn't do any of the prep bombs wow. that I went to do. Stand in the back of the class. Is this the humanism book that you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, this is the humanism book. Uh, I read a couple critiques of it, too, because uh, there was. it almost seems too good to be true, a lot of it. And uh, there were some critiques that were pretty interesting. A lot of the... Uh, so there's a, ca- a chapter dedicated to climate change, obviously, like, much of the book is describing how all these sort of like objective measures of human progress have absolutely exploded in the past 50 or 100 years. Like people are wealthier, happier, healthier, living longer, all these things that that getting the zuck, getting the zuck. Yeah, which we never <laughs> had before, <laughs> which should be good things, but they don't think they are. What? No, no, all oh. good things. Okay. The point is that and we've talked about the media a lot here. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but what sells in the media is always going to be these negative sort of dark outlooks, pessimistic. Yeah. And, and don't the be truth rude. Of the don't matter, be rude. The truth of the matter is that things have generally gotten much, much, much better for almost everyone on the planet. Like, like incredibly intensely so. And definitely for, for nations that are developing like China and India and whatnot. And the, the, you're talking about like hundreds of millions of lives that have been improved immeasurably. That generally it never it never gets discussed and never really is talked okay. about because. But still, more to be done. Of course, and that's a main that's a major major point that he keeps making because a lot of it seems controversial when you first read it. Like, what is this guy talking about? But he stresses that just because human progress has been on this like incredible upswing ever since the industrial revolution doesn't mean that activism and trying to right wrongs that persist like these things don't happen in a vacuum it still needs you know people to get out there and vote and fight for what they believe in but it's also fair and safe to look at objective data and say wow like we have done an amazing job right right yeah it's it really is, and some of the I wanted to bring a list of some of the statistics that are like really, really shocking, which I didn't. Uh, but negative cells is that negative cells yeah. and things like he has a whole chapter on terrorism, like this, and he talks about sort of the psychological effects of like people are so much more outsized, worried about a terrorist attack when you're three thousand times more likely to die in an accident of some sort. Mm. So it's like these weird psychological traits that we have that are completely irrational and we would probably benefit from measuring things by a more objective 
rational, logical way. I don't know, Rick. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, that's a risk perception problem. Yeah. I don't know, like, but the, the, I think a bigger problem is that, you know, you get out the the progress that's been made but one thing i was reading recently uh, just how progress doesn't move in a straight line it doesn't trend in a straight line and a lot one of the biggest problems is that people are still artificially held back um you know like it's not due to lack of resources it's just poor allocation of them deliberately holding it back from certain people and Right, Keep and he it. has he has an entire chapter dedicated to inequality as well. How, how do we fix that? Well, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. In other words, poor areas, how do we I – mean, are they ever going to be any different? Or how does one fix them and make them better? Well – Areas of blight that are um, – Well, are there the any solutions? let me read sort of this yeah. passage on Wikipedia because I'm almost certainly going to butcher everything that he says. But when he talks about inequality – he says that, and this is a quote, it's not a, itself a dimension of human well-being. So essentially what he's saying or what they're trying to examine is does inequality on its own cause unhappiness in the sense that if the poor get better, right, their quality of life improves and the rich get better but at a much quicker rate, does that cause unhappiness because of a sense of unfairness? He argues that it's a net positive that the poor have more wealth and are healthier and happier. Yeah. That it doesn't matter if the rich also do so at a, at a more exponential rate. Right. Which, That's a pretty shitty take. I yeah, mean, yeah, well, try asking a poor person about that. Let's see what they think. I mean, but uh, he argues that the benefits that the quote unquote like bottom quintile sort of reap are a part of the same economic tide that the rich are also benefiting from, if that makes sense. I think I know a lot that would disagree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have all his studies and everything. But he, sa- he sounds like he's trying to be positive anyway. Yeah, the whole, from- the whole book is like focuses on the positive. Uh, and it says here, critics hold that enhancing social mobility and combating inequality as a result of unfairness are important legitimate ends in and of themselves beyond any effects of reducing poverty. So in other words... His stance is that the focus should be on reducing poverty as a whole, regardless of what that means for the rich. Whereas, and I think it's a legitimate counterpoint that inequality in itself should be combated as well. But it's an, it's an interesting take where they look into all these psychiatric and psychological studies about happiness as, it, as far as like inequality. And are people unhappier when they know the guy next to them? has a better hmm. quality of life or more resources. And are people made happier by material things more so than say good health or I think up to a point, right? Like if you have the means to feed yourself and close yourself and, but it's more a question of like, if the poor have also benefited from these leaps and bounds and wealth and everything, does it make them unhappy knowing that others are top... making bigger strides? Right, right, exactly. And Rick, you say what? He's saying it doesn't? Uh, I don't know. I think he's asking the question, right? No, I don't think it does. I, I think if you asked a poor person, like, why does this guy have more than you? I think that would piss them off. I, I don't but, but but how about if they're on the upswing, which I think is what his premise is. Yeah, that's yeah. Kind of- Well, I, because I think they would argue that the fact that they're not on as fast of an upswing as the rich guy is an artificial... It's an artificial creation. And... 
There's no reason for it. So uh, why why would you keep them down? Like it it would make less sense to me that that guy would have more than me. I think that's a that's a that seems like an overly rosy picture painted by someone who can afford to feel that way, and it's almost apologetic of people that get away with taking stuff from people under them. See, this is what I'm just trying to look at some of the passages I had highlighted here. He talks about a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, <clears throat> who published a book in 2015 called On Inequality. Frankfurt argues that inequality itself is not morally objectionable. What is objectionable is poverty. If a person lives a long, healthy, pleasurable, and stimulating life, then how much money the Joneses earn, how big their house is, and how many cars they drive are morally irrelevant. From the point of view of morality, it is not important everyone should have the same. What is morally important that is that each should have enough. So these are sort of the hot buttons that I knew with Rick. You say what to that? No. <laughs> I mean, that's coming from somebody who's a college professor and is probably extremely well off. It's ridiculous. Like I, <laughs> I, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I mean, there are millions or thousands of people dying because they're addicted to drugs that rich people are benefiting off of right now across the country. Like this guy's got his head so far up his ass. That, that's that, 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 no. I, <laughs> I'm gonna get mad and red. <laughs> but, but, and nude. But, oh, I'm already there. So here's the, some other. Here's some other. Because I have some. I have some stuff. Uh, uh, sociologists Jonathan Kelly and Maria Evans have snipped the causal link joining inequality to happiness in a study of 200,000 people in 68 societies over three decades. Uh, they held constant the major factors that are known to affect happiness, including GDP per capita, age, sex, education, yada 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 and found that the theory that inequality causes unhappiness, quote, comes to shipwreck on the rock of the facts. In developing countries, inequality is not dispiriting but heartening. People in the more unequal societies are actually happier. The author suggests that whatever envy, status, anxiety, or relative deprivation people may feel in poor, unequal countries is swamped by hope. Inequality is seen as a harbinger. Or what is it? Harbinger? Mm -hmm. Harbinger of opportunity, a sign that education and other routes to upward mobility might pay off for them and their children. Among Dribble. developed countries, what's that? Drivel. <laughs> That's absolute drivel. <laughs> Why do you say that? The idea that, like, because someone else, like, well, first of all, are they talking about an average? People are on average more happy? Because that that's a bunk idea, because there's probably people with a ton of money that are happier than the, t the poorest poor person that'll swing the scale. Like, are well, but, this was this was uh, specifically in developing countries. What do you what do you say to this idea that inequality could could actually be a sign of hope? What's the well? I mean, it's a mirage. I'd say probably right. <laughs> that 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 presumes that like each one of those people has the designs on becoming as rich as the richest person, and in an equal society, that can never happen. Because so like. Just because they're feeling something that's a mirage doesn't mean that they're better off. I, but if they are, like a lot of, it's, 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 this so. sounds to me like a huge apologia for inequality and for keeping society completely split. It's it sounds like drivel to me. I, but I wonder, um, is everybody supposed to be equal though? Well, that's I guess that's sort of the underlying point. Is like if the no, people the question are happier, is the question isn't is everybody supposed to be equal? It's should everybody be as unequal as we are right now? And I think the answer is resoundingly no. And that doesn't mean we have to have like a completely 
leveled playing field everywhere. But it, but if if in some cases inequality were found to be beneficial, you don't think that's ever pop possible? I don't Such think a, to the level that it is right now, it could ever be considered beneficial. And you well, should ask the lowest person if they think it is. No, but that's not. But I mean, for this point specifically, where they're saying in developing nations, it's actually can lead to greater happiness among the poor. And how so? How so? Because the idea is that with even with drastic inequality, it's a sign of hope that things could get better for them. So the idea maybe being. But why isn't it? Why isn't it better right now? And that's that's because they're being artificially held down by the greedy. So, but this is in developing, so it'd be interesting. Yeah, well, no, developing countries are part of a global system that exploits their labor and their GDP. It's not like they're a vacuum because they're a developing country. It's all interlinked. I, like, no. <laughs> Do you think that inequality could never raise the happiness of anyone? Do I think that inequality? I, I think it's an irrelevant question because it makes no sense to artificially keep people down when you don't have to. When you could allocate resources better, and people at the top didn't keep so much for themselves, and I, I oh, guarantee sure, sure. you, you'd have in, in in society. Look at the developed countries where there are more inequality, where they did like where everything's better distributed, like the Nordic countries, and look or, or New Zealand. Look at their happiness quotients and see what that looks like. Oh, so I, I wanted to get back to the other thing about when you were saying earlier, Rick, about the people that are hooked on drugs. Not to say that no rich people are are not hooked on drugs, but. How how are the rich benefiting from that? When you like you made that statement, I'm I'm paraphrasing now, but you were saying the 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 depressed people that are on drugs, the, the there are rich people that are benefiting from yeah. that. Anybody that owns stock in a pharmaceutical company or anybody that works at oh, the high okay. levels of a pharmaceutical yeah, company yeah. does. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah, and that's a large large amount of the economy. Yeah. They benefit from the fact, like, the, the pharmaceutical company would prefer that any malady that they currently prescribe opioids for never gets a permanent solution, because that way they'll be able to keep prescribing them. If you fix, if you fix lower back pain, if you came up with a, with a magic met, methodology to fix lower back pain, that would hurt their, their industry, and they yeah. would lose money. So they deliberately don't want like people to get better because they will be able to stop selling them pills. Hopefully that's not the case with my burning question. Could they cure cancer, but they won't because it's such a big money maker? I, I don't know. I... Yeah, but then you'd have to like that, that, that then you believe in this conspiracy that scientists around the world have conspired not to like find what would, what would be the, the most important medical breakthrough in human history. That's not to say that the funds aren't being allocated in a way that would discourage that, but it's not like a group of scientists have gotten together and figured it out and are like, okay. we got to keep this yeah, we're gonna get... No. I but, see what yeah, it well, But it isn't funded. But, but like, yeah, I don't want to get conspiratorial about cancer cures, but, but, but I know for a fact that there are surgeries that are readily available in Europe to... Uh, it's basically a prosthesis for spinal discs where they can go in and if you have a torn disc, they can replace it with an artificial disc and you're like, no. And that's not widely used here at all. And why is that? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever read why? Or... 
I, I think it just recently got approved by the FDA, but after a lot of pushback and lobbying against it, like, because I, there is a doctor in Dallas that does it now, but the, the normal procedure is to fuse the spine together, which causes a lot of people, a lot of pain for the rest of their life, less pain mm. than they were in when they tore the disc, but it reduces mobility and, and makes it so you probably have to take pills. So why is that? Like, it's, it's not that hard to figure out. Like, here's some more. I'll go through and read the, the, the bits that I had uh, highlighted for the show. He talks a little bit about the conflation of inequality with unfairness. Psychologists Christina Starmans, Mark Sheskin, and Paul Bloom took a look at the studies and found that people prefer unequal distributions, both among fellow participants in the lab and among citizens in their country, as long as they sense the allocation is fair. In other words... If the bonuses went to harder workers, more generous helpers, or even the lucky winners of an impartial lottery. Quote, there is no evidence so far that children or adults possess any general aversion to inequality as long as they feel that the country is meritocratic. How do you say that? I think you got Meritocratic. It. And they get angry when they feel it isn't. Narratives about the causes of inequality loom larger in people's minds than the existence of inequality. That creates an opening for politicians to rouse a rabble by slinging out, singling out cheaters who take more than their fair share. Welfare queens, immigrants, foreign countries, bankers, or the rich, sometimes identified with ethnic minorities. So, well, I don't think ahead. we Comments. we're not even close to a meritocracy here. So, like, I think what he's trying to show is that it's not necessarily the existence of inequality itself but the causes of inequality that can cause these sort of polarizing rifts. That's just he, semantics. Well, he's just trying to sell a book by sounding fancy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know why the Tiananmen Square riots happened, right? It wasn't because they were protesting communism. It's because they were protesting the capitalization of the Chinese economy. The students got pissed off because they had almost a perfect meritocracy where, like, their their central planners or whoever put them in jobs as they deserve them based on their performance in school. And as they liberalized the economy, they knew that nepotism was going to start where people could just start putting in their, their fail sons because they knew they knew the kid or they wanted to give their buddy's kid a job and they didn't want that. And they rioted <laughs> like that's what the Tiananmen Square riots were about. Not a protest against communism. It was a protest against communism going away because they thought they were going to lose their meritocracy. So like I, uh, no, we we don't even have it close to being meritocratic here. I, like if you want to say it's corruption or whatever, or the causes of inequality, not inequality itself. Well, maybe blah, blah, maybe blah. We're, like I think you're just being overly semantic, and you're well, there's a lot more to this chapter. But I, then he's not. I don't think he's saying that it's meritocratic. That, yeah, well, that, but, but I mean, like if you're going to argue about. It's the the causes of inequality and not inequality itself. You're like you're just smelling your own farts. Like I, I. Well, but he goes into this is the thing. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to speak for this guy as I'm reading this chapter. Uh, I think he goes into something called this, and you maybe you're familiar with this, uh, Genie or Genie Index, which Gini, is I'm not no. And this is one of the things that I think has brought on some criticism. How do you spell that? What you it's were just saying? G I N I index. Is that like an acronym for something, or is that? I was trying Global. to. Find, I think it, it looks like it was a guy's name, and I believe 
I suspect it's less effective to aim at the guinea index as a deeply buried root cause of many social ills than to zero in on solutions to each problem, investment in research and infrastructure to escape economic stagnation, regulation of the finance sector to reduce instability, broader access to education and job training to facilitate economic mobility, electoral transparency and finance reform to eliminate illicit influence and so on. So I don't want to like, uh, I don't want it to come across as if he's making the claim that everything's meritocratic and it's and all what is, good. What is meritocratic anyway? It's like everyone gets what they deserve. So if you're a hard worker, you get, you have an ability to benefit from that. Yeah. You remove any kind of corruption from the selection process for jobs or, or for anything else. Like it's totally right. based on your abilities. And the way that he presents these chapters is it's very like methodical. So he'll kind of talk about the problem or what he sees to be the problem. And I think like you're saying it's semantics, but I think that he sees this distinction between the causes of inequality and the existence of inequality to be a central part of the discussion. And that's why he says that, in other words, it's fundamentally damaging to point to inequality and say, this is the problem when really it's what causes inequality. And then he points to these things, investment in research infrastructure, uh, regulation of the finance sector, broader access to education, job training, electoral transparency, finance reform, all things probably we could all agree would be good things. And he talks a little bit about the influence of money on politics is particularly pernicious because it can distort every government policy. But again, not the same issue as income inequality. So the family in Chester that can get a new Chevy is going to be pissed off because the family in Haddonfield got a new Lexus? Is that? Well, there are some some discussions in here about that. I'm trying to read this and talk. It time. sounds like he seems like they they they're happy that things are improving. Oh, uh, this is the other one, Rick. I don't know if you're familiar with this Cousinets curve. Mm-mm. This drew some criticism too, I believe, and it's a it's a hypothetical arc of inequality over time. Uh, so he talks about the difference between absolute inequality, the difference between the riches and poorest. And relative inequality, uh, like measured by the Gini index. According to a famous conjecture by the economist Simon Kuznets, as countries get richer, they should get less equal because some people leave farming for higher paying lines of work while the rest stay in rural squalor. But eventually a rising tide lifts all the boats. As more of the population oh, gets, swept the, <laughs> gets swept into the... This is like the Laffer curve, but in macroeconomics, isn't it? Uh, but I think that he looks at... Now, how, how is it different? Well, there's been a drop of global inequality, due, and he says this here, a drop of global inequality, a decline in inequality, that poor countries are getting richer faster than the rich countries are getting richer. We need a single measure that combines them, and he talks about this international Guinea index. So the, um, now he's talking globally, not just the U.S. Globally, right, right. In the U.S., I wonder how it looks. I think he. I think he talks about here, and the U.S. has definitely increased, right, Rick? What's that? Inequality. Yeah. But you mean there's more poor people, or the poor people are way further apart than from the rich people than they ever were? Uh, no. Uh, well, I'd say both. Like the concentration at the top is is increasing, and the amount of people with less at the bottom is also increasing. Oh, but you could argue like somebody's working three jobs and 
in an index like this, they'd be saying that they may be above the poverty line. But I would argue that working three jobs to maintain that is kind of forcing somebody to work balance three jobs to maintain that is immoral. And that's yeah, captured yeah. in those number. Yeah. Like, so they should be getting more pay is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You you shouldn't have to work three jobs and right, right. and not and be below the poverty line or, or, or near it. Like that's that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Or is stuff too expensive? That that too. Yeah. Wow, how do you fix all of this? Jeez. The hell out of the rich. <laughs> Take the highest tax bracket or create another tax bracket above 400K or something and tax it at like 90%. Like a lot of the problems would go away. I wish I could find that thing about the uh, Nordic countries because he talks about how it's almost like um, a bell shape where it's like for developing nations, inequality is beneficial. And then it reaches a point where Beyond that point, it becomes very dangerous, but I can't find it now. I'm trying to read at the same time. I don't know how you could argue that in any country that it's beneficial. That makes no sense to me. You don't think I, it ever could be for a developing nation to see, like, they for people aspire, to see the they upswing? They could aspire to that. Right. But you could just give them the upswing of it. Like, I, <laughs> why, why hold people in poverty on the way to it? It doesn't make sense to me. Like as if there's someone doing it purposefully. There absolutely is. There are countries all over the world where we exploit their resources and they're like, look at Mexico for Christ's sake. Or like any country in Africa, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there's like, there are tons of natural resources there and we let like warlords run around. Sudan's another one. Like there was a genocide going on in Darfur during the Iraq war. We were supposedly spreading democracy and freedom to the Iraqis and completely turning a blind eye to what was going on in Darfur. Like, Not George Clooney, he wasn't. Right. But I mean, wh why? Like, if, if we're going to be, like, let's be, let's be consistent about this. Like, uh, Yeah, why are they picking and choosing certain... There are trade agreements that we have with countries in Asia that, like, like look at where your, your tags on your clothes. They come from Bangladesh, Vietnam. Right. Like, the... Not only does that price workers here out of job, like the textile industry here goes goes in the toilet, but it allows them to pay incredibly low wages. Or the iPhone that you use, like all the stuff with Foxconn, those those workers were like jumping out of buildings because they weren't getting paid anything. So you could have a cheaper iPhone. You, you're gonna tell me that's not artificial? We're not keeping them down as a result of that? Give me a break. Like I. Oh, how about um, this whole thing you're saying, like. Um... The foreign netting that goes out there instead of the stuff we're making in the U.S. I mean, I run into that every day. Oh, wait, this might be. When I go to like a union job site and I'm talking to these contractors and I see that they've bought, you know, this netting from other countries and I go, wow, you guys are going to argue at your union meeting about we need this and we need better benefits there. And yet you're supporting a manufacturer when you have one right here in, in the same city as you, not only, and they go, well, you know, you got to talk to the purchasing guy. That has more to do with trade agreements and stuff out of their power. Like if you're going to price them into bankruptcy with the netting that's right nearby. And I agree with you. It doesn't make any sense, but yeah. it's the, it's a broader trade policy problem than it is. I, I wouldn't blame the union for that. I, you know, <laughs> Uh, no, but I mean, so what? What? Uh, like, I don't know anything about the, the trade stuff. But, 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 
the reason is because ours is a hundred dollars a roll and theirs is twenty dollars a roll because they're paying their people are working, you know, a wage that's not enough to survive. And my thing is if you guys want to argue for more money here and there and more benefits, but you're gonna support a foreign manufacturer rather than one in the states, well, you got to talk to the purchasing guy because the purchasing guy gets points because he saves the owner money. But somewhere it has to stop. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I think the problem there is that the, there's there's trade policy that creates $20 netting elsewhere, right? Like we have trade agreements that allow other countries to produce netting that low. Yeah. And as a result of that, they're going to they're going to purchase the lower cost ones so, so they can pay their employees kind of a vicious cycle so we got to start charging them more to bring this stuff in here right i mean no it, it's it, the, it, the, when you put start putting tariffs on stuff like that you can cause a depression like it happened back in the 30s they tried to do it like to st- to ward off the effects of the beginning of the great depression i think it was called the smoot hawley bill and then it made everything worse. <laughs> so, oh, like, okay. I mean, at some point, like, the idea that developing nations will aspire to, like, the inequality within them will cause them to aspire to become, eventually, like, you would think that the limit of that is that every country becomes developed. Well, once every country becomes developed, whose labor are you going to explore exploit right mm-hmm. and i i think the trade deals that allow trade with nations that will allow labor to be exploited need to be reworked not not yeah. not, not pricing because i don't know like i i don't know that you can bring manufacturing back to what when policy has already killed it in places but uh, you, you you certainly can level the playing field by requiring trade partners to hold their manufacturers to certain stat- standards that provide their workers with justice. I, yeah, but, yeah. Um, I I don't think I don't think saying we're we're going to raise the the taxes on you helps their workers right like it, it's just gonna incentivize right. you to purchase elsewhere and the problem doesn't go away uh here's what we were talking about poverty in america just real quick um the study looked at between 1979 and 2014 the percentage of poor americans dropped from 24 to 20 the percentage in the lower middle class dropped from 24 to 17 and the percentage in the middle class shrank from 32 to 30. From from what years? 79, this is 79 to 2014. To uh, and then it says, where did they go? Many ended up in the upper middle class, which grew from 13 to 30%. Wow. And in the upper class, which grew from 0.1% to 2%. Now, they talk about the middle class being hollow, hollowed out. Middle class is being hollowed out in part because so many Americans are becoming affluent. Inequality undoubtedly increased. The rich got richer faster than the poor, and the middle class got richer. But everyone, on average, got richer. So I guess Rick's point is that it could be more equitable. Despite the fact that everyone's better off, 
there's there's reason to improve or room to improve. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, improve the lives of people in poverty at a quicker rate. I guess is the ultimate point. Yes. Yeah, because there's there's no reason to 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 go wipe your hands and say, oh, you know what, we're fine. Like, <laughs> right? No, no, and that's and that's what I want to make sure I get across is that. He says again and again and again. I know I'm making him sound like a right wing nutshell right now, but I think that this this discussion of inequality is super touchy for this kind of thing because it's been so politicized. But he is firmly like liberal college professor. But a lot of these studies and stuff can challenge a lot of what we hear. And one of this thing they call this the optimism gap. He talks about this. A majority of Americans believe that the standard of living of the middle class has declined in recent years, but that their own standard of living has improved. So people think that, oh, I've been doing better, but everyone as a whole has been doing worse. So he talks a lot about these perceptions. And as we just saw, like I think we just said recently, like maybe a couple minutes ago, we were talking about how people are more poor, and that's just blatantly false. It's important to look at the actual facts and the distributions and whatnot, and that way go about having a rational discussion. Oh, okay. So then, and it's no doubt that inequality is an issue, and you know, like I said, has been politicized. But, but I mean, is there any talk about like, you may be less poor, but by what metric? Because if if wealth gets concentrated towards the top, you're effectively more poor, even though you may have more money over more gross money. Does that not make sense? I you you mean relative wealth, right? But but that's a really terrible way of looking at wealth, though, because wealth is created, right? I mean, we've we are well, like no, hun- no. I, I guess I mean the the number. If your number goes up, and it's higher than it's ever been, but somebody else's number has gone up at a higher rate, aren't you effectively worse off? No, because they, they normalize the dollar, so I skipped some okay. of this part, but uh, they define, it was using 2014 dollars, they define poor as an income of 0 to 30k annual, that's for a family of three, lower middle class as 30 to 50, and then it just says, and so on. But it's normalized to 2014 dollars, so everyone in America has gotten richer, since, from 79 not, to obviously not absolutely, but right. from 79 to 2014. But like you said, Rick, their piece of the pie has not grown as much as the richest piece of the pie. But it's important in these conversations to understand that, like we said, a lot of people think people are getting poor. That's just blatantly untrue. Now, whether the poor but, have reaped well, the benefits. I would argue it's just tomato, tomato, because you can feel like you've gotten poorer because you haven't caught you haven't kept pace. Right. Even right. though you've and gotten richer, the fact you've gotten richer relative to what you've been in the past, it, uh, I don't know. It's semantics again. No, it's, it, no, seems, it's it just semantics. seems like a clumsy way of presenting the argument. I, no, it, it's, it's an important point to make because they talk about that too. Like, does the perception of your neighbor benefiting more in this economic game relatively so than you, does that wipe out all the absolute gains that you, like people are absolutely, right, in absolute terms are wealthier now. And generally, that means an improved standard of living. But does the fact knowing that you haven't benefited as quickly as someone at the top, does that then, de- in fact, mentally decrease your standard of living? Well, and yes, I don't but know. I, I'm arguing it's not just perception because 
if you've again if you've gotten more, like you're talking about wealth but what about prices on the consumer side so like it, if but this is this is standardized these dollars are standardized with inflation standardized it's all, with impra- inflation but what about like so somebody with or a lot more people or fewer people up at the top have more money they can afford to pay more the price they drive the price up my my rate my rate of wealth has increased but things have gotten costlier so but these this this study is all in 2014 dollars so inflation is taken out of the, the question all right it i think it's just and i think that there's certainly room for discussion about how inequality impacts people's mental well-being and and perception of their own well-being. Doesn't that have a lot to do with the way you were raised, too? Yeah, I think so, too. Because, like, if you see the other guy with a couple boats and all, I I don't know that that would ever... But I think knowing that, like, I think it's also important to look at the objective facts and know that America has like reaped these insane economic benefits from 79 to 2014 this is just like basic fact that's not to say that inequality is not a problem i think it absolutely is and it's not to say that the rate at which the poor have gotten wealthier is sufficient when compared to the you know the upper deck but i think it's okay to look at the facts and say wow people have benefited from pretty extremely significant economic gains in the past few decades well and i would i guess my beef with that is that if you go into appalachia and look at or like any part of the country that's or like go look at some of the neighborhoods in hawaii where the, like any anywhere where the economy is artificially depressed it, this country has the means to fix that and it doesn't. And I don't think that's morally just. And I don't think you can look at that and say, oh, wow, we've gotten richer and we've benefited from it. You could say that on average or on the whole or corrected for whatever or standardized or normalized to whatever. If it's happening at all with the amount of resources that this country has, it's abhorrent. And it shouldn't be something that we pat ourselves on the backs over. No, and I don't think anyone is. But but they're two different questions, right? I mean, nobody's saying that that's right. But it's okay to also enter the conversation with right, the right. fact that on average everyone is better off. That that because to say otherwise is to then step away from rationalism and and you know fact driven yeah. argument. Because even if you're averaging it though, there are people that are worse off. <laughs> but on the whole, people are there are people that are way better. But there's off. no reason for people at the bottom to be worse off with the resources that this country. But has. that again, but that's those a are two argument. different questions. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you know, it is. Uh, well, I mean, it, to to know that fact that people are wealthier is not to say that we're 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 done here. Well, and and yeah. he makes this point a lot, and it's it is an annoying point to kind of accept because it feels like. I see what you're saying. It almost feels like a way to like assuage guilt. Like, oh, well, people are wealthier, so we're done. That's not the point. The point is that you can have a rational discussion and say the families who have been left behind by the economic benefit. You could say both times. It's not mutually exclusive exclusive to say that that's wrong and also to accept the objective fact that people are wealthier in the country. And that's not to say that the fight is done. Or that, well, you yeah, know. well, th- that's where rationalism gets in the way of compassion. I think I, 
I don't think it's anything to smile about. Yeah, no, like like what you're saying, Rick, is the in these last in these last couple of decades of growth and wealth, these the big hitters should have been charged more in tax right. money. Right. But is that the simple solution? I, I No, there is no so. simple solution, but it, that that goes a long way. Yeah. But but my point is that we can agree on both of those things. We can agree to be able to look at the facts and say, okay, has inequality, has this absolute explosion in inequality. I don't actually, get what that achieves, I guess. I it it But but it's nobody's kind of a stroke off to me. I You don't see any value in in accepting sort of not when the other thing's going on. <laughs> but I think it's all part of the same conversation as far as like you need to be able to look at okay, what's working and what's not. Clearly something's working. Yeah. Parts of it are working when everyone's getting wealthier. We're on the right path. And again, that's not to also then say a separate part of that conversation is that the rate at which the poor have benefited, that's not to say they've gotten a fair shake of it. Right. But, and this is a huge part of this book is like, it's okay to enter into that discussion knowing these facts that may or may not agree with the outlook that maybe you've come to think of one's a philosophical thing compared to, to yeah in a uh, sense yeah one's subjective now and tell one's... me if the tax rate was hiked that money from these rich people that were abounding in wealth and the tax money that was garnered from that would be used to do what well is it for schooling is it for just handing it to these people that are where this big gap occurs or how do you go about if they did jack up for like rick says people over 400 grand where 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 exactly is that money going to go to what's the fastest way to try to narrow this gap healthcare yeah and and i would say education yeah and infrastructure infrastructure yeah all those things that that we were talking about earlier this is and and here this is he's putting it much more succinctly than I can stumble through it. But there's another. Does he talk about here. the median at all though? Like when he's talking about on average and wealth getting better, like I, because uh, it seems like they're two different things. Again, like he has median. all these citations. I could probably, but he has at the bottom here. He has uh, to acknowledge that the lives of the lower and middle classes of developed countries have improved in recent decades is not to deny the formidable problems facing 21st century economies. So in other words, it's but, a way But I'm of, saying it's irrelevant when it's allowed to be kept like that. But it's... What and I'm not going to change my mind. <laughs> but what do you mean it's... Like, you mean the fact that people have gotten wealthier is irrelevant? Or, or in what sense is it irrelevant? It's irrelevant when compared to the other thing that you're saying is, is mutually exclusive from... But certainly it's that, not harmful to know that. And anytime we can find objective fact as a way to sort of discuss what, what things are working and what doesn't. I mean, it can't, it can't be actively harmful to know that, right? Yeah, but it can't be actively harmful. I don't know how it's beneficial. I, I think it's beneficial just as a way to be able to measure the progress of the country. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I don't, in but, other words, and, and I don't... I don't think it's ever not beneficial to have the facts. Does that make sense? Or place some emphasis on entering these kind of discussions with some level of objective-based... But Rick reality. is kind of saying that they should say... Right, right. And I, With this in mind, how are we going to help... How can we help? fix it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
which I'm, I, I'm hope I hope people do. Maybe not. Well, and he talks about a lot of these, like uh, the hardships faced by one sector of the population: middle-aged, less educated, non-urban white Americans are real and tragic, manifested in higher rates of drug overdose, and he cites that suicide. Advances in robotics threaten to make millions of additional jobs obsolete. Truck drivers, for example, make up the most common occupation in a majority of states, and self-driving vehicles may send in the way of scriveners, wheelwrights, and switchboard operators. But I think it's important, the point that objective facts and rationalism have a seat at the table, I think is enormously, enormously impactful. And I think it's important not to ascribe like, okay, then we make policy changes based on these, but to have the information available and to enter that discussion about inequality and about, you know, wealth re- redistribution. I think it's important to always base those in any way we can in objective reality. And I think that's what he's trying to get across. It's not to say that, and I get what you're saying. It's not to say like, oh, look, everyone's gotten richer. We're done here. Pat yourself on the back. There's no more problems. But it's a way of having facts to say, okay, when we come to this table to discuss how can we make things better for that family in, in Appalachia or for that family in Hawaii who's been left behind, how can we impact them knowing these are the facts here and knowing these things worked or knowing this is how people benefited? How can we use that in the progress to make problems better for the people who maybe haven't benefited, like you said? Well, I'm going to be a smart ass and take issue again because it shouldn't be presented – if he's, a, if he's a college professor and he's taking classes on stochastity, he should know this. If it's a statistical sample that he's basing his study on, there's a level of confidence interval within that, and there is a level of unknown stochastity or randomness. That It's not an ironclad fact, first of all. I mean, he may have done a very good job on this. I don't know. I haven't read the study. I haven't looked at it. But to be presenting it as a be-all, end-all, and it's not wrong or there's not a level of uncertainty with it is is false. But and everybody should understand. Everybody should understand that or... about statistical analysis and study is that there's always a level of uncertainty with it. Like, it, first of all, but you but, mean, you mean as far as the poverty rate in America, or uh, yeah, well, whatever whatever he's presenting his data with, I mean, yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any sense of like this is the absolute truth, but I think this is what the evidence is showing. Yeah, well, that's a better way to say it then. If he's going to be is, <laughs> I remember I, I remember when I was trying to get into show business and one of the facts that i heard was this is a small part of what we're discussing here but in the sag membership and sag union rates were ungodly expensive especially if you weren't working but in the membership the top five percent made in this one particular year i guess it was 83 or something when i was out there the top five percent of the sag membership made 95 percent of the money the year prior in in movies and TV. So you had those people like Jack Nicholson at the time and those people making 95% of all the money that was dispersed and this this other 95% of the SAG paying members earning the other 5%. And that's not... Yeah, yeah no, I don't want to... Rick, I don't want to make it sound like he's, he's saying this is like the Holy Bible. I think he's saying that these these are the studies and evidence that have come out. I don't believe there's any body of evidence that would say the opposite, uh, that poverty is... And I bet you I could conduct my own study that would 
provide, let's say, I don't give a shit about your rationalism <laughs> or your data, given the way I feel. And like, and no amount of data is going to move people away from that. And I think the last election proved that pretty conclusively. So it's a right. tool in your belt, fine, but it's not, it's not but, something that we need to sit around and say, well, why don't you just look at this data and feel better? Why don't you understand it? Like, But you can agree that the, the value of looking at, like, you know, peer-reviewed scientific research is much better than just sort of throwing out whatever, you I, know. I'm not, I'm, I'm, there may be a benefit for people like you and me. For the people that are really down hard, they're going to tell you to fuck off if you, if you tell them to look at your study. That, that, well, they'd probably tell me to fuck off no matter what, but, but at a certain point on the national level, these things need to come from a place of logic and reasoning and research and evidence, right? It does, but I, again, I don't see the, the value in that kind of talking point. Well, that's just one bit of because this. it sounds like to me you're just wagging your finger, like, or he's just wagging his finger and stroking himself off by saying, "Well, actually, yeah, 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 everybody's getting richer, so why don't you feel better?" Like, no, that... I see. Well, no, I see what you mean. I think, as for many things on the den, it would it would be beneficial if everyone had read the book because I <laughs> I stand here and muddle through these things. Uh, but there there is an entire chapter based on this. A lot of these points are raised. Um, let me just get to the end here where he kind of wraps up, well, sort of this section. Um, and this, you might say, here's the, uh, the start of the section. It says, <clears throat> rather than tilting at inequality per se, it may be more constructive to target the specific problems lumped with it. Now, you, you might say that's a semantic. No, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> because yeah. you are tilting at a windmill if you... <laughs> If you're trying to make the that if you're trying to present the result of your research that way, you're you're absolutely tilting at a windmill, and it's stupid. So he says the the trends of the past century and a survey of the world's countries point to governments playing an increasing role in both. They are uniquely suited to invest in education, which we talked about, basic research and infrastructure, to underwrite health and retirement benefits. In parentheses, relieving American corporations of their enervating mandate to provide social services and to supplemental incomes to a level above their market price, which for millions of people may decline even as overall wealth rises. So again, I don't want to I don't want to paint this guy as like some right wing nut job because he presents data that. No, I, I, I think it's quite the opposite. I think you're from the way I'm looking at it. He's one of these neolib cranks that like. <laughs> thinks they know what's best of everybody because they've got numbers, and then they end up being wrong. Like Gabe Kapler. Like the the Clinton campaign. Uh, I don't know enough about the neo-lib crimes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you can do, you're pretty much feeling like you can do with stats what you want, depending on yeah, what which side I think of it. Is, which is a good point to an extent, but, but well, the no, conversation... No, I mean, his data may be very valid. I, I, I don't... <laughs> Well, go on. I, I mean, interrupt you. Like, well, no, I, was just I think gonna he's say, going down the right path with what you started saying there. Yeah, because I, I see what you mean about like people can manipulate data to fit their. Well, and I, he, I'm not even accusing him of doing that. I, I, I he, he might. I mean, before you read that sentence, what it sounds like is he. It's all academic. Like he, he came up with this research. Great. So what? What does it do? And it, right. In my and mind, I'm it doesn't do anything. I was. I'm leaving out much of that in right. this chapter, but, and I don't want to make it sound like he's, because he sounds I see, like, 
You know the, the way they make Neil, they make fun of Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter because yes, like for being it, it'll be like oh well actually you know the, the gravity would pull you back towards the moon in that cartoon or whatever like that that's what it reminded me <laughs> right right and maybe maybe I've mischaracterized him then too because like he gets into how can we apply like in other words here's the this is how he approaches a lot of these chapters and leaving aside the issue of like you know. Studies can be manipulated and samples can be manipulated and all this other stuff. That's why I wanted to read some critiques of his stuff. I know like his climate change chapter has some pretty significant problems with it. But what he'll do is like present the research and then he goes into and how can we use this research not as the driving force of policy changes and all this stuff, but as a way to to sort of jumpstart the conversation to say, here is what we know or we think we know. Here is what the evidence points to. How can we use this to then address some of these problems that have continued and, and do continue? And he, like I said, he talks about here, government spending. This next paragraph, it says, the next step in the historic trend toward greater social spending may be a universal basic income or its close relative, a negative income tax. The idea has been brooded for decades and its idea may be coming. Despite its socialist aroma, the idea has been championed by economists such as Milton Friedman, politicians such as Richard Nixon, and states such as Alaska that That's are associated. What's that? A lot out. That's What's a that? Lot out. <laughs> well, he says that are associated with the political right. And today, animists, analysts across the political spectrum are toying with it. Milton Friedman was the psychiatrist on MASH, wasn't he? Uh, well, he was an econ- he was a right wing economist, like Reagan. Based no, but I mean, remember the guy in MASH? Who played the psychiatrist? I think that's, uh, that's I think that was his name in the in the show, Milton Friedman. Not that, not his real name, but the name of his character. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. But he talks a little, and in fact, we probably one of these episodes we could talk about universal basic income because that's one I would actually be fascinated. Well, I have a pretty substantial criticism of that because what he's doing there is he's trying to say. Look, I'm building consensus, and we're reaching across the aisle. People like Milton Freeman and the Alaskan state government and everybody else he named aren't to be bargained with. They're, they're to be treated as enemies that shouldn't even have a place on the floor. If you want to bargain with somebody, it should be the left bargaining with the Democrats, and then we would have a better society. The reason those people want a universal basic income is so that they can take the rest of the social welfare net away. And then they'll have you paying even higher health care claims on everything. You won't have any Medicare. You won't have anything else. And they'll say, look, we gave you ten grand a year. What else do you want, you, you greedy little pigs? Th- th- that's why right-wing people want universal basic income. It's to further gut the welfare state and, f- and throw you a bone. And that's, that's ridiculous. Now, if you want to talk about it in, in relation to having UBI with all those programs intact, then we can have a discussion. But the right don't want that. And the reason why Alaska has it is because they've given away so much of their uh, natural resources to the oil industry. And then they get a surplus from the oil industry, and they give about like $2,000 back to each citizen. That's not enough to live, and and it's a result of a pretty bankrupt, morally bankrupt industry. So like using those as rhetorical devices to say, oh, look, even the right agrees with it. The last time we got that, we had Obamacare. And look, look how great that's been. Like, where it's like, oh, you know, we've reached across the aisle and formed this policy with the Republicans, and, and look how great it is. And it turned out to be an absolute steaming pile of shit. So, like, making an argument like that makes him seem like a neo-lib crank. Like, 
Well, I don't know to play to continue to play devil's advocate here. I don't know if he's necessarily suggesting that's what should be done. I think it's sort of an objective. Like it's possible that no, no, it no. no. Could it's happen. not objective because he left a lot out. He left out the fact that they want to get they propose universal basic income because they want to get rid of everything else. That, that that's leaving something out, and it's a big chunk of the argument. So like. If you want to talk about it, talk about it how it can be beneficial as a supplement to what already goes on, not as a means to further gut what's already there. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't—he right definitely doesn't dive into it. He, he exactly. talks a, a and, little and bit more. And that's being about disingenuous. That—that's almost making an argument in bad faith if you don't go into that and you bring them up. Well, I don't know if it's when he brings it up and says it could have its day. I think he means that in the current climate, if the right's talking about it, I'm not saying that this is sort of ideal no but, but in, in the current climate if the right's talking about it what'll happen is the right will say we want it and the dems will say oh yeah you can have it but we have to keep all these other things and the right will say fuck you no way and then the dems will say you're right let's get rid of all these other things and you can have it that's what'll happen that's what's happened the past like 20 years so again said, they're not a, they're not a group of people to be bargained with or to be brought with any kind of uh, to be thought of of having any kind of beneficial means to society that they bring to the table that <laughs> everything they do is the worst for everybody but a small group of people and the sooner people get around to see that like that it doesn't get much more rational objective than that and the small group of people that they're looking after are whom it's so wealthy yeah oh god many of the jobs that roberts would take over are jobs that people don't particularly enjoy and the dividend and productivity safety and leisure could be a boon to humanity as long as it is wisely widely shared so you're right that he doesn't really i mean this is the end of this section so i think it's just sort of a throwaway that, that's be, like a typical liberal rhetorical cudgel is to say even the right wants it but they never go into why they want it like <laughs> yeah he definitely doesn't do that here it could be met with public jobs that markets won't support and robots can't do or with new opportunities and meaningful volunteering and other forms of effective altruism. There's robots a, there's are doing a f- work. Wealth doesn't go away. You know, like it's just fewer people. The people that own the robots get it. That's what we right. need to watch out for. The net effect might be to reduce inequality, but that would be a side effect of raising everyone's standard of living, particularly that of the economically vulnerable. And that's what governments are meant to do. That's what we were talking about with uh, – like the people that use Facebook have an expectation that a regulatory body is going to step in and act on their behalf. We don't have that. Where did it all go with the Zuck? Not nowhere, like you guys thought. Was he? Uh, yeah, no, nothing. Like the the show's over, you know. Yeah, nothing's. <laughs> I, one thing that's been interesting, I don't know if you've noticed it, but all the services I'm subscribed to have been updating their terms of service. I don't know if you've noticed that. Well, you know what's annoying to me is that my Spotify, because I was an idiot, and I, like, when did Spotify come out? I was probably in college, right? So I signed up with my Facebook, and now I can't decouple it, or at least it doesn't seem like I can. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm stuck. The Zuck got me. I got the Zuck, and it wasn't pleasant. Did you you email uh, the Spotify service or no? No, I didn't care that much. Yeah, no, I, I got an email today from Twitter saying we've changed our settings to now you can go in and turn. Remember, we were talking about opt in, opt out. Now you can go in and opt out of all these ways that they've been tracking you. Oh, uh, okay. Um, 
Yeah, if you log on to it on your on a desktop, you'll you'll get the message. Uh and then you can go in and turn everything off. But but that's that's a result of the pressure uh, or the screw. Uh, yeah, and yeah, that is something I didn't expect to happen, but you know, be, the thing is is that they're going to say I mean, this is going to be cynical, but they're going to say, look, we went in and did it all of ourselves, and then they'll slowly bring it back to the way it was without telling anybody because there's no legislation to stop them from doing it. Right. And then they'll say, you don't need to do the legislation because we're doing it on our own, and then nothing will happen. So like, so can one go into f- uh, uh, Facebook now and do some kind of screening so like that they don't? Or something? I have no idea. I yeah, you, you can. maybe ostensibly. But by the way, Alan Arbus, for those of you, who are, he was he was Major <laughs> Sidney Friedman. Sidney Friedman. Sidney Friedman. Uh. Yes. Well, Friedman we or Friedman. Another monster episode for you folks. <laughs> who would have known a discussion about income inequality would be so? Wow, uh, I mean, really, produ- productive. I'm impressed. I feel like I need to shower now. <laughs> the book, the book, possibly by a neoliberal crank. Uh, don't plug don't, his book. I'm, <laughs> I'm not familiar with the term. Enlightenment Now, Steven Pinker, in case you want to check it out. I'm sure there's more in there that would call, be a lot more cause for controversy. Real quick, uh, real quick before we close, there. Uh, if anybody heard the horrible thing that happened in Toronto, the, the there was mm-hmm. a kid that ran a bunch of people over, I think on Monday, yesterday. Yeah. But he's he's been... <laughs> He's been outed as an incel for. <laughs> oh no! Oh, that's and that's a tease for next week, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I will say, like, does sound like a plug for his book, but I, you know, I do a lot of playing devil's advocate here, and also, Rick, I know you have strong feelings on this sort of stuff. If you read something that we think we should discuss on the podcast, I would love to uh, to dive into it. Me? Yeah. Just as like, you know, like a counterpoint to all this neolib stuff. <laughs> he may not be a neolib, but I like just, just I, I don't mean to write the guy off just because I disagree with a few of the points. I didn't read the book, so I, I, I don't really know that much about him. But yeah, I mean, well, uh, me neither. Um, but I'm yeah. happy to sort of have a discussion on, you know, different sides of the issue. He reported the result of a test of his political orientation that characterized him as neither a leftist nor rightist, more libertarian than a third. Oh, my. (laughs) He sounds insufferable. (laughs) He talks about libertarianism as being nonsense in the book. Well, no, like there's like there's a theory where it's divided into quadrant. Like there's there's libertarian left and libertarian right and authoritarian left and authoritarian right. Uh. Oh, so he's he'd saying, be like libertarian left or something? He, yeah, he's saying he's on he's stuck on one axis between left and right, but he's on the other axis he's down towards libertarian. So he's like a libertarian centrist, whatever the hell that means. I don't know what any of that it, any of that it, means. It sounds insufferable. <laughs> I gotta go watch Fox News. I don't judge anything based on, yeah. <laughs> uh I'm going to so, read more about them. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's worth... That's what I mean. Like, I'm bringing these books to the table, and I don't want to. I don't want it to seem I'm, like, shilling for this guy. It was certainly an interesting book, but I don't know... A necess- little bit. A little bit. <laughs> I don't know the other side. You know, like, a, I would love if someone would post, you know, like, a critique of this stuff. It kind of goes back to that Sapiens book that I read. Remember we discussed that? Yeah. Sapiens and then Sex at Dawn, too, I read. And you read all these, you read these books, and they're super fascinating. But then you're like, all right, let me do some research. And you research critiques 
And of course, there's going to be all these critiques. And then you, you're kind of left with like, I don't know what the hell to believe. So like, I would love if this guy comes out with this, right, in 2018, if somebody would do an equally well-sourced and sort of well-documented critique of his ideas and we could go through that. Like, Rick, that would be fascinating. We'll and, well, that's what I was leaving over well, to Rick as far as like, if there are other sort of... Here's a good one. He he defended Larry Summers, who was one of Obama's economic. Larry Summers is a colossal piece of shit uh, who is responsible for a lot of the, for a lot of the inaction on the financial crisis. Uh, he he made a lot of shitty comments about gender gaps in pay, and this Pinker defended him, saying, "Well, if you look at what he said, his data were correct, and his hypotheses, and blah 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 blah, like." That's where that's the limits of ration of complete rationalism, right? Like, <laughs> like you can make arguments about the numbers being what they are and everything like that, but if you're using them as as a method of, of pathos to change people's minds, that that that's the limits of it. Like, right? No, I agree with you. Like, if you're just bringing up this data to kind of point to it and be like, okay, it's fine, and then walk away. That's not helping anyone. Yeah, I don't. And I didn't I read the whole book, so that might not be what he's doing. But it, like, and I and I think hearing only a small excerpt of it set me off. But like, yeah, I don't think he was doing that in this. Uh, maybe I didn't portray that well enough until the very end. <laughs> but uh... well, I mean, you started to, but then when he he like left that big thing out about yeah the the political <laughs> the UBI, stuff. I, I, uh... Uh, I wish I could have found the the portion on the Nordic countries too, because he he uh, more than once sings their praises and says what they're doing is working, uh, which I tend to agree with. But I think that was a pretty good discussion. I want to say thanks to our fans in Argentina. This is a good way to learn English, I guess, if you're in Argentina and <laughs> need to learn about horrors. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there something else I said at the end of episodes? You just said thanks. Well, Spanish. Thanks so much. 